I'm not going to change the world, but for the difference that you can make, it can be enormous. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Paul Streets, CEO of the Lloyds Bank Foundation. One of the UK's largest corporate foundations, they donate almost £20 million to hundreds of good causes each year, a real wide range of causes they support indeed. And what I really love about them is a lot of their funding is unrestricted. So it's funding things that aren't glamorous, that are vital to good causes and vital to charities. Paul's had a phenomenal career in the for-purpose sector. You're really going to enjoy this episode. Before you dive into it, can I just ask whatever platform you're on, whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is, please hit follow. It'll ensure you get future episodes. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Paul Streets, a really warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. Good morning, Mark. You're the CEO of Lloyds Bank Foundation. What's its mission? What's its purpose? Our mission is to reach people facing deep disadvantage uh, within England and Wales. And by that, we mean people facing a range of kind of comp- what we call complex social issues, starting with people involved in refugees, homeless, addictions, drug abuse, people coming out of prison, a whole range of issues. But obviously, they compound and they often aggregate around people who've experienced trauma at some point in their lives, which has caused some sort of catastrophe in their lives. And our purpose is to reach them through small local charities, typically organisations with a turnover, what has been in a million, but we just reduced it to half a million pounds sterling, that is, for your Kiwi audience, because we think they're really effective at reaching people in that situation. And so nearly 60 years old, you're a funder, but a funder that does a bit more? Like you tend to try and walk alongside charities? That's right. I'm 40 years old, actually. I might be 60 years old in the, the charities. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, our, our purpose is to do that because these are organisations which are typically run by people who are really committed to the community they work in and the issue they're trying to address. But often they're people who, for them, it might be their first role as a leader, as a chief executive of a small organisation with maybe, well, some of them will have two employees, some of them might have 20, the largest, but they're all relatively small organisations. And often they're really good at their frontline work, but may not be so strong as some of the back office support, if you like, around things like trash development and HR processes and uh, systems. So, yeah, as you say, walk alongside them by providing a package support, including funding, which for us is long-term. We fund for three years. And uh, alongside that, we provide, let's say, this package support during that period of time. And our money is unrestricted so they can use it as they wish. But what I should have said is alongside our core support for charities, we do two other things which build from that. One is we're working and increasingly doing more of this around working at a community level to try to deal with some of the underlying issues that cause the problems that we're trying to address in the first place, working with collaborations of small charities and local organisations to address issues. And thirdly, we do a lot of work to try to draw from what we learn to influence the wider agenda with government, with private sector employees, given our link with, with lawyers, for example. So, you know, we would say we fund, we develop, we influence those three. And it starts with WeFund because we're not credible unless we're reaching somewhere around 600 organizations we fund. But from that, we build around, we, we, we develop in communities, uh, collaborative work, and we influence the wider sector in a way that is trying to influence positively for the organizations that people are trying to reach. Yeah, wonderful. 
And I want to dive into some of the specifics about that. But before we do that, just in terms of your, your corporate foundation, you have a parent, so you have a funder, you have some independence, but you also have a, a line through to your, your corporate. Tell us a bit about the sort of how it's set up and how it's governed and all that good stuff. Well, we've got a very positive relationship with Lloyds Bank. I mean, I would say we are quite independent from it, but we're funded by it. We work with it where it makes sense to do so. We might want to talk about some of the skills-based volunteering work as we go on with the interview. But um, they're keen that we work on the work with too, and they've given us that we get nine-year rolling funding, so that gives us a lot of security, which guarantees most of our income, actually, and uh, it's a floor and ceiling level around that, around that nine-year rolling funding. And we've got, we've got a board of 12, of whom four come from the bank, but they're all independently appointed, and our chair is independently appointed. So we have a high degree of autonomy from the bank, but we work with it where it makes sense. The bank increasingly lives new leadership is focused on purpose. For example, be driver on social mobility, we would fit very much around that. And in reaching communities because it's strapline, it's helping Britain prosper. And we would say we're putting it all in helping Britain prosper. So it's a pretty close relationship, and we work with them very closely on areas, let's say, like skills based for material, which is something I'm very passionate about, which I'm sure we'll pick up as we go through the conversation more. Are you annual funding around the sort of 16 million currently? Is that what you receive? Yeah, I mean, our direct funding to charities and direct support to charities somewhere in the order of be about 15 million this year. Then alongside that, we are, we were down to that, our work in communities, which we're spending probably two or three million and our work around influencing probably another two or three million, depending on, on what that is. So it's a suite of things we do, but the bulk of the resource goes to even our work with communities and our work around influencing. The bulk of it goes to support local small organisations. A good example on the influencing side, for example, is we do a lot of work with um, Latin American Women's Rights Service, which is a small charity based in North London that works with migrant workers coming from Latin America and uh, women who've been often working in, as domestics within the UK context. And they've done a lot of work around better rights for migrants within the UK, and we've supported them to do their advocacy work. So we were doing our advocacy work, but directly with government, but also indirectly through the organisations that we would fund. And do you ever get a call from from the bank, in and you know, in their term, trying to influence or they are trying to um, stay connected in a positive way? But do, you know do, that independence. How how um, how much of a conversation do you have with the your, your bank and your funders? Because your funding is linked to their profits. That's right, isn't it? It is linked to their profits. Yeah, I mean, we we half percent of their net profit every year, and as I say, it's based on the last three years' profits. But it's a it's a nine year running deal. They're really positive about the strategy. I mean, we just had the senior team in the bank, for example. That's 20 of the most senior people in the bank. And bear in mind, the bank is the largest UK high street bank. Well, it's not high streets anymore in terms of numbers of customers. Yeah, with uh, a huge turnover at capitalisation of some assets. $34 billion last time I looked. I mean, it's a really big, it's a FTSE company. So it's a huge organisation. And um, they're very happy with what we do because they think it complements their approach towards helping Britain prosper but it helps them to reach through us people in places that they wouldn't be able to reach direct themselves around social purpose. So, you know, it, it's a pretty symbiotic relationship, really. And as I said, we have 20 of the most senior leaders in the group go visit a group of half a dozen charities in the West Midlands only a couple of weeks ago, actually, which is an indicator of the interest. And I think they see it particularly in society where young people entering the labour market really want different things out of their employers. They think we are part of that offer of the kind of stuff that the bank does that demonstrates it's not just about making profits, it's also about contributing to the community and not just contributing in a financial sense, but enabling people to act and to get involved in the community, which is something we're really passionate about. You know, we've involved some of that 2,500 bank people over the last few years in some direct support to charities in different forms, 
really building on the skills that exist within the bank around things like risk and financial management and planning and playing those out into the charities by with skills best volunteers. Because my mantra, mantra is no gardening, no digging. Uh, they use the skills they've got within the bank and deploy them in a very different context, which actually is really beneficial to all parties. The charities find it very valuable. The employees are really stretched to try and apply some skills in a very different context, but also connect with issues that they may not come across in their working lives. And, and as a foundation, we benefit because we're getting pro bono support, which has a high value with high, high cost if we were buying it. Yeah, and you and I are aligned on um, skills-based volunteering. So, you know, the end, the end of uh, accountants doing uh, painting uh, or fixing walls or those sorts of things. But it's sort of the, the banks using some of its IP, you know, what it's really skilled at doing, what its people are brilliant at, and then putting that into a four-purpose context and then you know, the, you guys are the facilitator of some of that for purpose, like using the IP and all of what it's good for to do good across, you know, England and Wales. That's right. I mean, it's just long. Yeah, I mean, it's just long as a sort of range of support. We call it enhanced, but it's really capacity building support. There's a whole suite of stuff that we provide, all provided by third parties. We're actually like the link person between the charity and the third party. We fund the third party's inputs around you know, a lot of structured development, kind of classic stuff that a small organization might need, uh, business planning. And uh, yeah, it, the, the the bank the bank office sits alongside as an integration part of it at its best, providing these like mentoring. We've done over COVID, we started doing more online work with them. We always had the view that we had to do things face to face, but charities did an amazing job during COVID of going online and working digitally. And we were able to do a lot of digital offers, which actually makes us independent of geography. Doesn't matter where people are in bankers, they can provide digital support, not for digital services, but using digital as a as a, as an app as a, as a point of access around a whole range of stuff, dealing with some of the issues that charities were facing at the time. And as a leader of someone, you know, who shares their name with one of the big financial institutions in the UK, and I'm just thinking sort of shocks at this point. So, you know, 2008 financial crisis, you know, banks came under fire. Fast forward to the global pandemic, you know, people with huge resources, organizations with huge resources, the pressure was on to respond and respond really well. But do you think as a leader of an organization, in that position, you know, you you sort of the weight of responsibility is is on your shoulders, and you feel it a little bit more than if you had uh, a different brand and uh, a different paymaster. Uh, yes and no. I think. I mean, it, it's. I mean, clearly, the brand book cuts both ways, doesn't it? So people know what the lies brand is in the UK. They have a view of what it is. Some of the views may be good. Some of them may not be so good. But a lot of people have a view of what Lloyd's Bank is, and it gives us a profile and a name. And, and usually that's a really helpful thing, actually. But it can be unhelpful. Um, clearly, you know, all the stuff around 2008 and the financial crash wasn't great because a lot of people were affected about that direct, directly. And in fairness to the group, they supported us through that period at the time when actually they were making zero profits and they were half owned by the state. So it was a, it was a difficult time. But it does cut both ways equally. We will find stuff that's quite edgy and, and sometimes maybe quite contentious for the group. But the group is, is happy for us to do that independent way. Uh, in the way that we do, because we're focused on mission and purpose, reaching the people that we need to reach. But we're not always dealing with cuddly issues. In fact, quite the contrary. You know, we're not we're not funding work with children, for example. All our work is with adults. We don't really work with animals. You know, we don't actually work with things like cancer. So some of the more, if you like, um, I wouldn't say easy because they're not easy issues, but they're more acceptable places of charity are the areas that we don't we don't tread on. We are dealing with things like addiction and sex work and domestic violence, quite hard edged issues that, you know, are a long way from many of the customers of the, of the bank. So, you know, generally, it's, as I say, it's a pretty symbiotic relationship and they're pretty comfortable that we would do that. 
the reputational thing in terms of the group for us is to, what's important, and I think it's important for us anyway as a funder, and I would say that whether we're a corporate foundation or not, is that where we are an advocate, we're an advocate based on what we learn and hear from those that we fund. It's not my personal political opinion. That's irrelevant. What really matters is what are we learning from the ground? What matters to the organisations, the people we're trying to reach from the ground? And how can we use what we know from our work to leverage, if you like, if you want to use a financial term, the wider sector, government, local government, for example, local government really important here in the UK in terms of the relationship between charities and uh, local government. How can we leverage and influence them around areas like procurement and commissioning and some of the fundamental things that all all rights of women, as we talked about earlier, with less Latin women women's rights and access access services to migrants. So we pick up some quite hard edge issues, uh, and and we're not interfered with in that respect. And I think we're encouraged to do so, but I think we only do so because it's based on the evidence we, we learn. It's not my opinion; it is based on that. And I think the foundations, you know, we're not democratically elected; we don't have members. We have to think about the mandate we have to be advocates. And I think that you've made some really good points. You know, because if there's a marketing team in a bank trying to control you know, the, the issues and causes that you supported, then they certainly wouldn't be going with the, the multiple complex issues that you support. And um, so absolutely true on that front. In terms of being able to do that and having that independence and, and being where the foundation is today, do you think that a lot of that's down to how it was set up in the first place? So I'm thinking sort of how it's the governance of the, the very beginnings of the charity that have enabled it to really be cause-led was what it looks like from the outside rather than, you know, get, fall into the some of the traps around marketing or brand or, you know. I think, I mean, it's true that that is true and it always has had um, ever since we were set up in 40 years ago in 2025 since 1985 we were set up. I mean, it's worth saying that it started out its life as something called the Trustee Savings Bank Foundation. So, and TSB is in the UK. And TSB still exists but we're no longer linked to the TSB but TSB was taken over by the bank as part of the, um, some time ago. And then, of course, the bank got larger in 2008 when HBOS and others moved in with it. But TSB was a mutual. So itself, it was a bank focused on purpose. But interestingly, when I talk to the bank, and if you think of the bank's origins, the bank was started by Quakers in the West Midlands. So <laughs> the bank yeah. has actually, at its heart, quite a strong social ethos. Uh, purposefully, which should be rooted, I guess, in its Quaker roots, although, we, you know, they're, they're, they're hundreds of years past that. But organisations do reflect, to some extent, today, where they started from, even in the case of the bank, hundreds of years ago, and in our case, 40 years ago. And being able to fund charities, in fact, before this podcast, I, I saw a post on LinkedIn saying, you fund salaries? And it was a charity inquiring to a funder and being absolutely blown away by the fact that they, they fund salaries. So that sort of un, you know, unrestricted back office keeps lights on. Was that hard for, you saw that as fundamental amongst your trustees? And then as we sort of, the world headed into a global pandemic and things got really interesting for so many organizations, they suddenly had all their fundraising turned off. Has that always been an approach for you guys? No, it's evolved over time. And I would say it's not all unrestricted because I talked about some of the influencing work we do where we're working with charities around particular questions and now we would be funding them to do particular pieces of work for us, but that's because we're working in partnership with them around an issue that would matter to both of us. But the bulk of our resources to our responsive funding, which is where most of our money goes, is unrestricted. And it's fundamental to me. And I guess it started, I came into this world not having worked in funders. And there's this myth that um, some trustee boards or foundations seem to have that they're sort of performance managing the organisations that we're funding. And if we have a culture where we're funding particular projects and we're requiring to report in ways that we want to aggregate for the convenience of the foundation's annual report, 
then we reinforce the message that actually they're accountable to us as funders. Well, actually, the message we need to give to organisations is you're accountable to the public you're trying to serve. How do you demonstrate that? And the best way we can support you to support to once we know that you are connected to the public that you wanted to serve is to give you unrestricted money so you decide how best to use it. But it seems to me fundamental because we're trying to shift accountability away from us as funders. We're not commissioners and we're not performance managing organisations back to boards, back to local communities so they can determine how best to achieve, achieve their own mission without any diktat from us. So it seems really fundamental to me and it has been a journey. I mean, we did quite a lot of project funding when I first arrived and we gradually shifted to what we call core costs which is not unrestricted and now we are unrestricted. I mean, in truth, it's restricted in that it has to be spent within a certain period of time. We want to split over the three years, but how people use it within those three years is entirely up to them. So for some organisations, for example, they will want to fund salaries, but some might want to put it into their reserves because it will make them stronger in their ability to, to be more secure for the future. Well, that's okay too, because we're funding and making a contribution to your overall work uh, rather than insisting that we're funding a little bit of it and requiring an attribution for that. And you touched on it then, you, before you said that you um, hadn't worked in, in funding before, but you needed a little bit of convincing that it was the right role for you. That was a conversation we had before this podcast. What have you learned in the time that you've been in the role? Because you've been you know, with Lloyds for just over 10 years, is that right? Just over 10 years, yeah. Just over 10 years, a couple of months ago. It's been a revelation, really. I mean, it's a job I don't think I could have done a lot earlier in my career. And uh, I mean, I brought things from earlier in my career that I was quite surprised by, particularly around development. I've done a lot of work in overseas development. And uh, interestingly, we're, we're building local NGOs in a way that when I was working at SightSavers, we were building local NGOs that they happen to be in Tanzania or Ghana. Ours will be in, um, you know, Tunbridge or, or Grimsby. But it's the same issue. So I brought some of that. But I guess my thoughts on arriving here were, were, were when I was approached about the rules. Well, really, it's just not very interesting, is it, giving out resources? If that's all you're going to do, it's a really important thing to do, but not something I was interested in. But I was quite excited by my conversation with the then chair about what he thought the potential for the organisation was. And the mission, and what I sold in the interview was, look, if you want somebody just to just be a grant, do not appoint me. You want somebody who will think about how we use that footprint to then leverage further. I'm really interested in this role including the relationship with group and how we make the best out of that. So that was the kind of pitch. But you asked at the beginning of this, what have I learned the most? And I think, I was going to be completely honest, when I arrived at the organisation, I thought we were funding a lot of great organisations. But I had no idea of how important these small local organisations are to some of the most vulnerable people in society and how effective they are reaching them. And I guess what I've come to learn is that I've worked in big charities. Big charities are really good at providing a kind of standardised product to a large number of people, diabetes really good providing standardised support to a large number of people with diabetes who would live their lives and have diabetes alongside them. What small organisations are really good at is dealing with people who have a series of things that affect their lives, overlaying and providing highly bespoke services that are relevant to them and relevant to their locality. And it's pretty unique. And it's, I think, a massive strength of the voluntary sector in the UK that we have these literally tens of thousands. I mean, 97, 95% of the sector has a turn of less than a million. And most of those are small local organisations doing a range of stuff. I mean, we, do, we fund a proportion of it, but reaching local communities. And it's a revelation, I think, because you ask people, the public in the UK, to name five charities, they probably won't name a local one. They'll then name Cancer Research UK and Dive UK and the National Trust and so these RNLI, these sort of household names. But actually, those aren't the majority of charities. They're unusual. The majority of charities are small local organisations on the ground, many of them dealing with these very complex issues. And, of course, a whole set of organisations we don't fund 
that have no staff at all, that have, have a turnover of less than 10,000, that's not an area we enter into. But it's a remarkably strong and valuable asset for the UK that I think is really undersold. And you've had a fascinating career, so I'm going to touch on that soon. But social work, you worked in health and public sector and for charities, IPTs UK, your current job. But taking you right back to your childhood, was there anything that you can point at back then that sort of pointed to for purpose would end up doing a role or, you know, being involved in a better society, a better world, that sort of focus? Can you, can you point back to some reasons why? <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny how these formative, these early things formative. I mean, when we were speaking before preparing ourselves, reflecting on the fact, I mean, I came from Scarborough, and Scarborough, for those in the people in the UK will know, but in New Zealand, they may not, it's a small town on the northeast of England, this out in London. So, you know, probably a town of 50,000 people, it's not particularly prosperous. It was a very grand Victorian resort that has seen its heyday probably 50 years ago. And my dad was a good grocer there. You know, it was interesting. He wasn't particularly politically active in a, with a big P sense. But he absolutely had such conscience. He would quite often give the takings of the business every day to a cause that was pertinent at the time. It might be a famine. It might be something he'd read about in the news. He'd give the whole of the taking. So he had that kind of mentality. And I suppose I'd grown up with some of that. And then I went from, I guess, walking from Scarborough, which is 250 miles north of London, for those who, who will not, not know him, was a graduate in London uh, at UCL, which is very kind of home counties, southeast, the university. But my first job coming out of that was as a residential social worker with what were then called maladjusted children. It's a terrible term, really, but kids who'd been through the care system who had had, had hellish, hellish lives. And I learned an enormous amount from that. As much learning from that, frankly, is giving to them because they like, needed a key worker system. I did that, did that for about three years in two different organisations. But it was a real insight into people who had not had some of the advantage that I'd had in terms of a very stable family background and support of parents and the way that they had. People who didn't have any of those things and had had to cope with them and were living in West London, which is where I'm working. And paradoxically, and I mentioned this when we spoke earlier, one of the first charities I visited when I started my role at the foundation was a charity called Z2K, as a case 2000. And it was set up in order to address homelessness in, in a part of London, which was not less than half a mile from where I began my career as a social worker. And it was trying to support young women in particular, young families who were effectively being moved out of their area, to like a form of ethnic cleansing, almost, into places like Balkan and Dagenham. Because housing prices were such that the local council wanted to, they didn't want to live in the same size house they had because they didn't think they had enough families. So they were moving people out, they were supporting people on the edge of homelessness. And I think it's, it was kind of ironic to make that kind of connection so many years on from that first role, uh, graduating with a geography degree from UCL. Back in 1980. So you've been a, like, from what it looks like, high achiever. You know, you, you, um, got a stellar degree. You'd had that experience with your dad, which I think was pretty unusual back then, possibly. But do you remember being quite intentional about wanting your career to count for good? Or do you think once you'd seen what you saw doing that social work, like how intentional were your actions and the direction that you took? Do you remember? Um, well, I don't think, I mean, the temptation when you go to a, you know, it's, a, it's what's called a Russell Group University in Britain. It's a top moving university, it's not a good degree. But I'd actually studied overseas development, so I'd become really interested in overseas development. That's partly why I ended up working in development, because I had formed an interest in that. I did a master's after I did my social work in that. But I suppose the you know, temptation is when you're at that sort of university that there's a whole bunch of big employers actually like the banker come around and want to recruit you. And I just was not really interested in doing that. I mean, A, I think 
I personally, I think, and actually younger people now don't make those choices so early. I cannot see how at the age of 21, with no life experience, you can really make a decision about what you do for the rest of your life. And uh, I actually think we've moved away from that model. It's a good thing. People need life experience before they make these really important choices if they do. But I knew for sure I just didn't want to do that. You know, and I'm, I'm well educated. I'm really smart. So I had a lot of choices, actually. And that's what I've been able, I've been blessed with having a lot of choices. And I've been able to combine what's been a reasonable income with something that really matters to me. And it has been really important to me. I just don't think I could have been motivated to work in an organization where primarily is about shareholder profit. So you know, I've always worked in purpose-driven organizations, whether that's in the public sector or the military sector, and love working with the commercial sector, but I've never worked in it. And I think that die was cast a long, long time ago, actually. I was never going to become you know, a banker or a stock stockbroker or any of the things I perhaps could have been, uh, or joined a management scheme with John Lewis's or whatever. just wouldn't have interested me. Um, it's really important to me that what I do is something that I think matters and that I feel I can make some kind of small contribution to it in the role that's the roles I've done. I've worked with some terrific people. I'm blessed with that. And working overseas, you've, you've done, as you said, international development. So how much perspective or what was those experiences like in terms of forming kind of who you are and your, in, your intentions and your career and your life? Like, was that a formative part of it? I mean, really important. I did a master's in agriculture economics and then worked then the postgraduate course with something called the Overseas Development Administration as well as it's British aid, basically. And I get sent to the Solomon Islands, just, just up the road from New Zealand. It's business up the road, so we several hours. But yeah, you know, really close. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Botswana I worked in. And I guess, and I worked with cooperatives, actually. It's interesting, the word that there was cooperative development. So, you know, it was actually, it was, it was, and, so, and then I worked for Sightsavers, which is an extraordinary charity uh, in many respects very committed to, again, the fundamental things about principles and what drives you. And again, I'm reflecting what I do now. Sightsavers itself was set up by a guy called John Wilson, who was blind, who'd been blinded, ironically, and quite coincidentally in an accident in the school that I went to as a, as a child in Scarborough, Scarborough Boys High School, who was blinded in the chemistry accident. An extraordinary bright man went to Oxford. He was asked by the RNIB, the Royal Institute for the Blind in the UK, after the Second World War, to go and find out why so many soldiers who were volunteering from West Africa were blind. And he discovered river blindness in West Africa. We didn't actually know about it until then. And he set up what was then the Royal Commerce Society of Blind and Sightsavers. So that kind of strong ethos is sort of fascinating to me how charities develop. But one of the things he was really absolutely committed to was not sending in expatriates. It was to build local strong NGOs and support local strong NGOs. And it's the same model, actually, you know, so we're not parachuting in people from somewhere else to fix the problems of Grimsby. We're working with local people in Grimsby to resolve their own issues with the power and the potential that there is in the community in which they work, just as we were working in Ghana with the Ghana Society for the Blind that was there in Accra. It wasn't a bunch of expatriates, it was Ghanaians trying to resolve the issues facing visually impaired people in Ghana and dealing with things like blindness prevention. So there are many parallels, as I said earlier, we're kind of we are building and supporting, I hope, strong local NGOs in a way that Sightsavers was trying to build and support strong local NGOs within the countries in which it was working. And was it a difficult role to leave? Like coming back to the UK, was that, do you remember that being tough? Yeah, I mean, it is tough. It's always, uh, but it's a bit of a, being an expatriate is a bit of a, it's a strange experience really, isn't it? Because, you know, we were, I'm not, I mean, we're, we're very comfortable, but we're not, we're not usually wealthy. But in a country like Kenya, which is where we lived, and I was traveling a lot within Africa at the time, and actually did quite a lot with South Asia with, with site service too, you are a wealthy person compared to everybody around you. And that becomes slightly contradictory around, uh, you know, and there's some discomfort with that, I think. In the end, if you're also being driven by purpose, you kind of 
does create slightly that here I am as a wealthy person, part of the aid industry, which he is. So while we loved our life there, and I loved the job, it was great, and I really love and admire still what site service does, it was important for us to come back, I think. We came back part to have kids, but we both came back, but our life and I both did postgraduate qualifications. I did an MBA and from that. But but it was my first entry into the voluntary sector. It was coincidental, really, site savers, because I would have worked in government as a civil servant if I stayed with the ODA. And um, it showed me what the power of charities is, and that story about John Wilson, you know, where their roots are is really, really important. And that's why, really, since then, I spend most of my life working in the voluntary sector. I did have a 10-year stint working in the public sector just before I came to my current role. Yeah, and those early lessons, you know, like building on that layers of experience that you've had in all of your roles and all of your like local and overseas experience, hugely valuable. In terms of you becoming, you know, leading organizations and, and being the CEO where the buck stops with you, tell me a bit about becoming a leader and, you know, stuff that you like and you don't like and you know so one of the things about leading organizations you have to deal with a lot of the a lot of the negative stuff right so if there's something that goes wrong that day it generally lands on your on your desk but evolving as as a leader and being comfortable with that and and, and, and thriving yeah i suppose it's interesting in the context of the conversation around inclusion in britain now and black lives it's come up black lives matter actually i'm very thoughtful about this but i did come up from a, a school of leadership in many respects where i, I kind of um I suppose I'm a bit of a control freak, and it doesn't work much in, in today's environment in some respects. I haven't really had to adapt that. But I think if you're a bit of a control freak and you're somebody who's not chief exec, you're always looking up thinking, I could do that better, I could do that better. And that's one of the things that drove me to want to be used to. I kind of think, I sometimes say to people, well, if I look in the mirror and I'm looking at an organization and it feels really awful, well, the only person you can blame is the person you're looking at in the mirror. If you're further down the chain, you tend to blame the hierarchy. But if you are the hierarchy, you can't. So, you know, you, <laughs> that wasn't so that mission to do it, but there's something about having complete control. I really love working with boards. And I think, you know, the sectors, good chief execs will really build and work with excellent boards. And I've worked with some really excellent boards in my time, and that, that's good. And I like, as I've grown older, seeing people uh, develop and build their own careers. And I do a lot of mentoring. I teach, actually. I'm a visiting professor. It's honorary role at Bayes Business School, which is, which is uh, one of the leading business schools in Britain. And it does probably the leading voluntary sector postgraduate course you know, and I teach on that so I, I wanted to train and develop the sort of leaders of the future but I guess you know I've been a chief exec off and on for 20 years and um, I, I was a civil servant for five years I hated it I loved the fact that in theory I had all the toys and you could play with them in practice they weren't your toys they were all ministers your ability to actually make any change was so limited and I think as a chief exec in the voluntary sector you could yeah I'm not going to change the world but for the difference that you can make it can be enormous and I really like that buzz you get from a bunch of people who are really excited about purpose and come together and focus on it, as I hope we do at the foundation. It's best we had our first residential a few weeks ago uh, with everybody in the room. We've got about 50 staff. That's a large funder in the UK, actually. And it was great. A real buzz. A bunch of people who were absolutely determined to do the best that they possibly can for the issues and the organizations and the places we're trying to reach. That's very exciting to see that energy and build the energy constructively around where do we make the most difference given that we can only do so much is a really important part of being what chief exec is and doing that with the board and it's fun you know it's demanding the book does stop with you but if you've got good people around you you're not really alone you've got a lot of people you work with as a team and if stuff goes wrong it always does go wrong as you get older you realize that very few things are actually crises that you're going to be worrying about in a month or two and if they are then they are serious but you've got a bunch of people around you who will help you work through it yeah and it's great that you talk about um, enjoying working with boards because a lot of nonprofit leaders struggle with that. What's been your toughest day in the office? 
Toughest day in the office? Gosh. Uh, uh, there probably been countless ones over the years, but I think the things that I often, the things that I lose most sleep about are always people issues. Have I handled the situation well? Have I dealt with that well? You know, sensitive issues around individuals, maybe performance issues. Sometimes I've not acted quick enough. You know, actually, this person really needed to go and to do it better, and it wasn't right for me or for them. I didn't. Sometimes you're kind of thinking about what's well, really going on in somebody's life. How do you, how do you deal with that and support that? Because uh, they're, yeah, I mean, ultimately, our job is about people. And that's the stuff. Now, it's not, not, not my worst day in the office, but those things, somebody resigns, you know, you always feel a bit, oh, God, you know, you feel a bit breath when somebody resigns. But actually, if people are moving on to better roles, then you should be encouraging that. You know, our role as leaders is to develop other leaders and see them grow and develop and work through other organizations and hopefully do good jobs elsewhere. Building on some of the stuff they've learned while you work, work together as, as, as partners. As, as a, so, yeah, but they are the people issues, actually. I mean, there's an awful lot of stuff that goes wrong, inevitably, but very few things that are cataclysmic. And you just work through it, don't you? And I guess you get used to. <laughs> I'm a terrible Monday person. I come into work, oh, when I come back from holiday, every time I come back from holiday, the first day I get back, I think, why on earth am I doing this? Three days later, I'm really excited by it and wondered why yeah. I ever thought about that when I was on holiday. And I have that every Monday, every Monday. Yeah, people think about imposter syndrome as if it's yeah. for yeah, young, younger people. God, you still have imposter syndrome when you've been a chief exec for 20 years, still getting the money. Oh, God, you know, this, this feels awful. Why on earth do I want to do this by Friday and wind up and excited about it all almost certainly? And I think when I get to Friday and I'm not, then that'll be the message that I need to stop. Yeah. And like I imagine during COVID, that was a pretty interesting time. You know, what mark would you give yourself out of 10 in terms of, you know, when all your team and your board would have been looking at you and going, all right, Paul. What direction are we taking here? It's oh, really tough, actually. I don't know. I mean, we did okay during COVID, but I think, like a lot of people, we, one for my personal mark, six, I guess. I think a lot of us were running around a bit like headless chickens, weren't we? You know, we've got to do something, but what is it we're going to do? And it took us a while to get ahead around that. And actually, some of my staff were really creative. And some of the things we did were really important. And actually, it made a significant difference to what we've done post COVID, particularly I touched on earlier the insights around Black Lives Matter and the issue from the question of inclusion, which I think we've never really thought about seriously, which is a real criticism. We shouldn't have needed COVID to do that. So, yeah, I think six. And in terms of, you know, those projects that you support, those causes that you fund and, and walk alongside, we talked about at the beginning, but are there, are there some examples of organizations or, you know, the difference you guys have made to people's lives that you could share with us that are sort of highlights for you and, and the team that love, love to hear about a couple of the highlights? Um, God, so many. And a lot are about individual leaders that I've seen develop with our support, but actually with their own, own resources. But it's the point of things, actually. It's going to talk to charities. I was at a charity quite a few years ago, actually. I mean, this is one of many cameras I could give you. And uh, it was a charity that deals with, actually, this charity is based in the Midlands, and it deals with young offenders. And it deals with kids who have been in care, the care system, looked after, or whatever you want to call it, care experience, lots of terms are useful. But also, fundamentally, they're people who experience trauma, usually people in prison or people who've got through the care system. And supporting them to move on in their lives is really difficult. And I was talking to a prisoner who still on my kind of regular visits, and this guy had come in and he'd work for, he started a job actually, having been in prison, so he's only probably about 55, this guy. He told me he'd been out of prison for 30 years of his life and through this organization finally got a job and he was doing delivery van, you know, he was delivering stuff. And I said to him, you know, what, you know, how, how's it feel to finally have a job? And he said, it's amazing. He said, yeah, at last I can go out and use my own money and buy a present for my grandkids. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's what transformation is about. 
<laughs> I think these personal stories of, I mean, I've got so many of them actually, Daijiki, fantastic stories of transformation of individuals, small things that actually make a massive difference to their lives. And, and this, that guy's life had been transformed for the first time. He was holding on a job. I think he had 18 months outside prison for the first time in his life for 35 years. Quite extraordinary, actually. Yeah. And there are loads of cameos like that. Actually, we've got of people who have been affected by the organizations that we reach. And actually, that's what keeps these people going and what motivates them. You know, a refugee I met in Leeds, a guy called, I won't give his name, but he was a, because he, he, he is currently just fighting for asylum with his guy from Eritrea. Meet you with a cup of coffee at this heaving charity in Leeds. And he's, he's so happy actually, and so grateful for what he's got. You think, my God, I mean, my turn, what he's got is nothing. There he is, so up for it. Um, what he can bring to Britain, what he can bring to our community, the, the, the hell that he's been through to get there, uh, he came across on a boat. And yet to see him so optimistic and upbeat about what the possibilities and options are for him, and so keen to be making contributions to society, having been through all kinds of traumas in trade before he arrived. Yeah, and our, our work is littered with countless tens of thousands of people who are like prison that like that guy from Eritrea, whose lives can be affected positively by some strong support from a small local organization that actually puts them first and doesn't see them as an issue, but sees them as a person. So humanizing um, your support of people and, and sort of sharing those stories. And because you deal with complex and like the, the list of causes that you support is, is fantastic. So asylum seekers, uh, care leavers, domestic abuse, homelessness, learning disabilities, mental health, fending, sexual exploitation, trafficking. <laughs> young parents, racial equity, all of these things, she's super complex. And the, the line is not necessarily a straight line for those people. So when it comes back to sort of sharing your impact or, or measuring your impact or, you know, telling the world what you've done with the money, do you need to show some leadership and do you need to sort of uh, hold the line on that and not get too obsessed with metrics and numbers and numbers of people helps? Like, is this, is this something unique in there for you as a funder? I think it's really important, actually, that we tell... I think because most of us, I mean, we all know, frankly, most of us need complex lives in one way or another, but very, most of us have not experienced some sort of horrific trauma in our lives that's caused something to happen. And I think it's really important we tell a story in a way that we demonstrate these issues are not simple. It's not somebody needs a bit of CV support to get a job. It's somebody who actually needs a job who may never have been in work, who maybe have come from a family where there was abuse and maybe sexual abuse themselves and maybe they're out of prison, or our parents or themselves have had drug or alcohol problems, maybe in care, all these things over there. And there are no simple answers for people like that. And actually, I think it's really important we tell a story that actually there are people who are at the bottom, not on the bottom of the tree to be cherry-picked, which is so often what happens with contracting or the way that funders operate when they play a numbers game. But actually, at the top of the tree, where the prize is enormous, if it can really help people move on in their lives. And I think we tell that, but it has to be a narrative story. And it has to be told through the voices and the eyes of the people are being supported or the organisations support them, not by aggregating as funders just because it has to be convenient for our annual reports. So it is, it, it's not a story that's not about measurement, because it is about measurement, but it's measurement in a qualitative way, and it's a recognition that we make a contribution to these organisations in a way they make a contribution to people's lives, but not taking the credit for that. The organisations do that delivery, we can make a contribution to it to support them, the funding that we offer. And that's a privilege. It's a huge privilege to be a funder and to be able to reach out to you know, 600 organisations and affect potentially in the lives of thousands of people in that sort of situation and make that small difference. But it is a, qual- a quantitative a qualitative story rather than necessarily a numbers game. And the numbers game is just a tyranny. You know, we're not a contractor. We're not commissioning services. And we must, one of our roles is to educate, as we would do within the group and within wider and wider society, about the needs of these people and how complex they are 
and how they're answered for solutions. And in terms of being there 10 years, have you got another 10 years in you? What do you think in terms of the future for yourself, but also probably most importantly for Lloyds Bank Foundation? What do you see the future? Um, more of the same or a bit different? Um, it continually evolves, actually. I mean, and it evolves, and I think in a positive way. One of the great things, and one of the things I'm most pleased about in terms of the culture of the organization is that you know, as an incoming chief executive, supposed to do review and introduce all kinds of zappy new things, and really expect you to do that. When you've been in an organization decade, you can't still be doing that. It has to come from within, and I think it does come from within. So, you know, if there is something that the organization has, which it may not have had when I arrived, is that latent ability deep within the organization to drive forward improvement, always to quest to do more. So we will do more and we'll do better. We are doing much more work in communities, but trying to balance that with our work directly with single organizations, because you know, in many respects, we are funding through our work with individual organizations, consequences of failure. Had there been better support for somebody 20, 30 years previously, like that prisoner I met, then perhaps he may not have ended up in prison. Perhaps he would have had a very different life story. So what is it that could be done in his community that might have avoided that? But we're doing quite a lot of work now. We've just kicked off a program called Local Collaborations, which is supporting collaborations of organizations to work together locally around three issues. One is welfare, one is refugees, and one is uh, step-up accommodation to try to address a local issue to try to get some of the root causes. And I suspect we'll do more of that. And I hope we'll get better at leveraging what we do. So, you know, the die is cast in a sense. There is, our strategy is a framework, but it's not a straitjacket. I think the strategy is a good one, and I suspect that will radically change. We're not suddenly becoming going to become an arts fund. We don't know anything about arts, and wrong with arts, but we don't do that stuff. So we focus on what we do and know best, and we've always committed to do that. But how we do it, I think, will evolve significantly over the course of the next 10 years, whether I'm here or not, because I think that's embedded in, in the enshrined, I hope, in the organization, and with the people who work there, which is not dependent on me, and a board that has changed quite a lot. We've shifted our board away from what was a great and a good board, fantastic as that was, to one that's much more rooted in lived experience and bringing people close to communities to decision-making. I think that's something that will change us quite a lot. So it is evolving. And um, I see these things as you know, organizations don't move up and down in steps. They move up in a, in a, a hope, in a, in a curve. And you hope that curve is a positive one. And you hope it's steep enough for the organization to, to not, not to falter. But, well, sorry, steep enough to be ambitious, but not so steep that it would be collapses in, in the meantime. But, you know, we will progress and we'll progress from that strategy, I suspect. But I suspect if you came and talked to me in five years or 10 years, if I'm still around in 10, um, which I don't think I will be in this organization anyway, I hope you see it and evolve even further and try to reflect some of the sort of what we're learning from the communities and the context in which we operate. And do you feel like there's a lot, seems to be a lot of negativity around, you know, we're, we're facing some huge challenges, high inflation um, lead to real pressure around, you know, cost of living. You know, we've got some sort of identity politics, which is making life really difficult for a lot of minorities, you know, just come out of a global pandemic, lots of issues mounting up. But you're an optimist. You see positivity in the future. Like, and if you do, what what do you pin your hope to? Yeah, I mean, it would be easy, wouldn't it? You, you, you lay climate change on that as well. and uh, Climate change, see, yeah. God, I forgot the really yeah. important one. <laughs> so, you know, and obviously the... Um, the people who are worst affected by this, these are always the poorest. It's always the case. It's not the wealthy who can isolate themselves to many of these things. It is the poorest. I'm a pessimistic about the ability of state actors to address these issues, to be honest. I mean, I've worked with government and I've worked both within government and alongside government. And yes, at the edges, it can make a difference. And local government in particular can make quite a lot of difference to local communities. But I'm an optimistic in relation to the power of individuals and communities to begin to address some of these issues. 
And at a macro level, I don't know how that plays out. But I think at a local level, for the things that I think we have to purchase over, I do have a lot of faith in these local organisations. And, and I've become, if you like, a kind of radical decentralist. I think that the more resources and the more decisions, more, more resources that are passed locally, the more decisions that are made locally, the better they will be made. Now, that isn't going to resolve some of the macro issues like the 1.5 degree centigrade, you know, move towards, towards, towards global, global warming. That does need to be solved at international level. And I, I honestly wouldn't have an informed view as to our, our chances of that or not, frankly. But I am an optimist around the ability of communities and people to make a difference in their lives, given the right kind of support, because we see it through our work. So, you know, I need to be contained about what I think I can actually influence and focus on that. And I think that's one of the things that happens as you get older. Don't you? I'm not going to revolutionise the world. I'm not going to create a new, a new financial or economic system. But I do think we can make a difference. And as individuals, we can make a difference through our individual actions to the people in the communities we are closest to. And what do you do when you're not working, when you're not <laughs> leading an organisation? Uh, oh, well, I'm married and I've got three kids who are in there. 20s and anybody who thinks that kids in their 20s are easier than they are when they're 10 waiting until they get to your 20s you know they're they're, they're, they're very, but i mean very engaged with my kids and it's fascinating to see how their lives are, trans, are transporting i'm very interested in history i'm interested in art actually and i'm very interested in antique clocks which might be a slightly odd thing but i think I, i'm fascinated by history and actually you can play it out i think that was fascinating we don't tell that story in britain actually the history of britain is a history of refugees and if you look at some of our artisans and artists in Britain, many of the best of those came over as refugees. So we don't tell that story. And actually, interestingly, a lot of them came over in boats from France and they happened to be Huguenots. They were from every trade with the Huguenots. So I like that kind of link. I like that connection with history. And uh, yeah, so I do, when I've got uh, spare time, read quite a lot of history and uh, stuff about and anti-clocks, which is a slightly odd thing. But I also sing, so, which I really like because I think it's one of the things about being a leader is you crave a situation sometimes where you're not a leader. And I love being part of a choir because I don't sing fantastically. I mean, it's, it's just fun. But you're not in control. You're just part of a group. And it's quite nice to be in those situations. And to put yourself in a position outside of work where you're not in a leadership role is quite nice, actually, and it's quite relaxing. And I walk a lot, actually. I do a lot of walking with my son. Britain's full of fantastic long-distance walks. And I've done every year I do at least one of those with my son, go for a week, and we do walk and it's very cathartic actually walking to spend time just you know walk, walk for six hours sit in the pub all evening and then walk up and do it again the next day next time. this is why he has so much trouble on monday mornings paul this is the, you have too much fun <laughs> on the weekend well yeah <laughs> maybe <laughs> paul streets massive thank you for joining me on purpose podcast thank you mark uh, joy to talk to you and uh, i hope this is a value to friends in new zealand as i hope it is to those of my colleagues who work with me in england and wales and in the united kingdom thank you Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.